So for our scripture reading, we'll turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, we're going to begin in verse 6. I've been with you a few times now, working through and hitting different patches from Revelation. We are working on a series of Revelation in Living Water. And so you're catching highlights here and there. We, we hit the two witnesses together in Revelation end of 10, beginning of 11. We also hit the idea of the uh, ever war, the uh, picture of what we sometimes call the antithesis, the battle between God and the devil. And today we look at a picture given after another description of warfare with the two beasts. The two beasts, the first is like a, a worldly power, uh, sometimes defined as government or ungodly churches or empires of some sort. The second beast is a bit of a propaganda. It's described later in the Revelation as a, a false prophet. And it uses persuasion and deception to make everyone worship the first beast. At the end of that passage comes the beginning of Revelation 14, which shows the victorious church of God. And then we pick up in verse 6 to see a picture of judgment and the final judgment God will bring uh, to those who have uh, either come through uh, this great tribulation or have fallen in it. Revelation 14, verse 6, and we give our attention to God's word together. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. As far as the reading of God's word, our focus will be on verse 6 to 13. We may briefly touch on 14 to 20, just to give a little explaining word there. But the focus we'll have is verse 6 to 13 uh, this morning as we study God's word uh, together. So just a couple notes as I do join with you again on this book of Revelation and as a visiting preacher. Um, this is a bit of a heavier, uh, serious, sobering message. It is the, the passage uh, God has given us to study today. 
Uh, and yet, even here, we will find tremendous hope and comfort if we turn to look upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, as we come to this passage, it, it might be likened a little bit to a story that doesn't fit with our current day, in a sense, uh, because it's a Christmas story. I don't know if you remember uh, the Christmas Carol written by uh, Charles Dickens uh, when he tells the story of Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge. If you remember the story, I know we're not there in our heads. I know we enjoyed the sunshine. We can't wait to get outside this afternoon. But if I could just ask you to go back a little bit, if you remember the story from around the Christmas season that is watched sometimes and put out in the movies, this man who is uh, a little bit tight-fisted, to say the least, is visited by three ghosts, one of Christmas past, one of Christmas present, and one of Christmas future. As each, each uh, these visitors come to him, he sees the failings he's had in the past, he sees the failings he has in the present, he sees the failings he will have in the future, and he sees the consequence of these failings. And as each visitor comes, it's increasingly terrifying. So if you watch the show with young children, by the time the last visitor comes, you, you, they may be a little nervous. It's, it's a little bit scary. And he sees just what will be the fruit of all he's done and all he's lived for. And the fruit, of course, is death. But the, the neat part about the story is that uh, the man wakes up in the morning and realizes that the vision he saw of the future hasn't happened yet that he's not yet standing at the grave, that there is time to change. And today, as we read Revelation 14, we are going to see a vision of judgment that is quite uh, sobering. It is quite scary. If it was a movie, we might tell our kids to close their eyes and cover their ears or fast forward this part. But it's given to us now so we can realize it's not yet come. If we don't know Christ, there's time to change. If we're fighting against God, there's time to change. We can come to God and ask forgiveness and find his grace in our lives, making us new people, giving us a new life that's not ours. He can save us from the wrath to come. And if we are living for Christ today and we are following Jesus today, we're in a battle. And the devil is constantly trying to tempt us and lead us away from dedication to Christ. He wants us to live for the things of this world, for the pleasures of this world, for the desires of our heart. And today we see in God's word that if we fall for those lies, if we believe the devil, it will lead to a condemnation nothing on earth can compare to. For following Christ, God warns us today and encourages us. First, he warns us not to fall for the lies of the enemy. He promises life. He always leads to death. But he also says, if you follow me, if you pursue me, if you will prize me, if you will make me your everlasting reward, you will know the glory that is to come. And beloved, we want to see that this morning in God's grace as we study Revelation 14. We want to see the warnings, we want to see the encouragement, and we want to find ourselves strengthened to serve God. This final judgment has not yet come. May we strengthen our hearts knowing it is on the horizon, and may God help us to know what it means to follow him in light of it. So we're going to see this in three uh, points this morning. The first is the reality of God's judgment. The second is the good news of God's judgment. And the third is, is how we live, how we respond to this. First is the reality. 
And this is something we need to discuss and talk about. Uh, we live in a church and a church culture uh, where the idea of hell and the idea of judgment is, is uh, widely underplayed and in some places even flatly denied. We have people who go by the name of Christian who will tell us that there is no such thing as hell, that there is no eternal judgment, that when we die, if we are following Christ, we go to heaven. If we're not, we're just, we're just gone. And uh, they think that message is loving, but it's not. It violates God's word. It is a compromise with the devil, and it can lead people to hell. Uh, we need to understand that hell is real, and judgment is real. We're going to start off uh, noticing that. So we begin in verse 6 of Revelation 14. Verse 6, And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. Now isn't that interesting? As soon as the angel is introduced in Revelation 14, it is described as having an eternal gospel. When you think of the gospel, what is the gospel? How do you define the gospel? If I said to you, what is the gospel, the eternal gospel of God, you'd probably say that Christ came and died to save sinners or something along those lines, and I'd say, amen, indeed it is. But what's remarkable is that this angel having an eternal gospel comes and says this, verse 7, uh, to all people of the entire world, every nation, tribe, language, and people, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The angel, having an eternal gospel, comes and calls the world to fear God, because the hour of his judgment has come. And this is the eternal gospel or at least part of it. When we think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely and only good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is also a message of a holy God who will judge the living and the dead, who will reward the righteous with everlasting life and punish the wicked with everlasting Condemnation. And this is part of the gospel. You may remember when we studied Revelation 11, if you do, you have good memories. But there's a part in the end of Revelation 10 where John was called to take a book from the hand of an angel and to eat it. And the book would be sweet to his taste and bitter to his stomach. Do you remember that? Sweet to his taste, bitter to his stomach. That book is the Bible. That book is the message, the idea of God's word. God's word has tremendous and beautiful consolation and comfort. But it also has a message of condemnation and warning. And we can't take one without the other. We can't say to the world or say to other Christians, we're a gospel-focused church. We don't talk about condemnation. We don't talk about hell. We focus on the gospel. That would not fit the teaching of God's word. It would not fit this passage. He has an eternal gospel, but he comes proclaiming the day and hour of God's judgment. What does this judgment uh, look like? Uh, how is it described? Uh, another angel, a second, verse 8, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, Babylon hasn't been introduced a lot in the book of Revelation to this point. Uh, Babylon will be more fully described in Revelation chapter 17, but she is in a sense, the picture of worldly, sinful power that is seductive. She's described as a woman. She rides upon one of the beasts, and she seduces the world. Uh, it is the idea, I don't know if you've ever um, 
uh, heard stories of people and they're, they're, they're young and they, they want to go and live in the big cities. And they go to the big cities and in the big cities there's all kinds of different influences and all kinds of things they haven't seen before. And the hometown ethics they may have had in the small town is lost as they go to the big city and they see all the lights and all the, the casinos and whatever else and they're tempted to live in a way that is not honoring to the Lord. And Babylon is kind of pictured and it happens in any city or any place, any heart, human heart. But Babylon is pictured as a place of temptation, as a city that seduces. It tries to lead people to realize and, and, and not realize, but to be deceived, to follow after the desires of their own sinful heart instead of following Christ. And so it's spoken of in things and ways of seduction sexually, uh, trying to lead people into sexual sin. It's spoken of in terms of things like uh, economic pursuits, making money and treasure and worldly goods your goal. And they seduce people so the merchants get rich off her, for example, and they make lots of money from her. And money is seductive, beloved in the Lord. When we think of what can lead us away from Christ, sometimes we tend to think of sins like, you know, uh, purity and sexual holiness, and we forget things like worldliness. Beginning to live for money. This is Babylon. She seduces the people of God. She leads them into sin, and I think all of us know what it's like to fight her. And one of the neat things about the judgment of God that we need to understand is that what is pictured in Revelation 14, 8 is that God is going to judge every force, every power, every person who would lead others into sin and rebellion against Jesus Christ. In Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking about the beauty of children. He has a child on his lap, and he says, unless you become like little children, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of God. Then he speaks to the importance of kids. He speaks to the importance of his children, whether they be little ones or older. Because if we are in Christ, we're all God's children. And he says, uh, woe to whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for him to have a millstone, and millstones were massive, round rocks that were used to crush grain. I don't know what their weight is offhand, but I'm sure they were heavy enough that you couldn't swim with them. And he says, it's better for a man to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Christ cares about purity. He cares about his people. And when someone leads his children to sin, when someone attacks the faith of his children, when someone says you still believe the Bible, you still think God made the world in six days, you still think there was an Adam and an Eve, you still believe in sin, you still believe in, in, in uh, marriage between one man and one woman, what, what kind of ancient crazy person are you? When people attack the faith of God's children, when people lead others to sin, it's not so bad, no one will know, it'll be fun. The Lord sees that and he condemns it. And he judges all those who would lead others into sin. Is that you? I remember having a young man come to me and he was dating, he was a Christian, he confessed Christ and he was dating a girl. Pardon me, he confessed Christ. He was dating a girl who was not confessing Christ. And he had shared with me a number of the stories of how they're making mistakes and 
drinking and drugs and whatever else they were doing. And at one point he said, but pastor, I'm just praying so hard that God will help her to know Jesus. I said, do you realize what you've told me today? You've told me you're leading this girl away from Christ. You're getting drunk together, you're doing drugs together, you're doing other things together, and yet you're praying that God will save her? Don't you know you're one of the people who's deafening her ears to the call of the gospel? God takes that seriously. Not only are those who lead others into sin condemned, but God will also condemn all those who were led into sin. Verse eight speaks of Babylon, who has made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. She has led them into immorality. But then in verse nine says this, another angel, a third followed, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Now, in chapter 13, it speaks about this beast, and this beast had everyone in the world who didn't have the mark of the Lord on their heads worship it. It used persuasion, it used uh, persecution. If you did not receive the mark of the beast, you could not buy or sell in the world. If you didn't worship the beast, some people were put to death for not worshiping the beast. It was a, a difficult thing to stand true for Christ, and yet all those who who did not stand for the Lord, all those who bowed to the temptation of the beast, all those who bowed and received the mark so they could go and they could buy and they could sell and they could enjoy their lives, all of them find themselves condemned. The condemnation, verse 10, is described as drinking the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Wine can be mixed, it can be diluted with water, but this is not diluted, it is full strength. And it says he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. Beloved in the Lord, I would be lying to you if I did not tell you that the image of hell in scripture is absolutely horrific and the word of God never lies. It is a place of eternal torment. One of the things that strikes me is the words, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. I don't know if you've ever gone through a time of great struggle or great tribulation or great pain or great weariness. Maybe, maybe you're, you're just pushed into a task and you're working and you're just exhausted and you just want to rest or you're, you're running a race and you just want to rest or maybe it's a, an illness and you've got a pain and a headache or a, 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 an ache in the stomach and it just never goes away and you just pray, Lord, just give me relief just for a minute, just for an hour, just, just take away my pain just for a little while. Hell is a place of torment where people will cry just to have a rest from their torment just for a little while and they will never receive it. They will know no rest. Day and night, forever and ever. Now sometimes we can be embarrassed by this kind of idea. Um, We can be ashamed of a God who would punish eternally those who don't worship and love him. 
But if we could see him, if we could know his glory, if we could see how much he loves his people and how terribly sin destroys them, we wouldn't be ashamed of the justice of God. When we hear of a earthly judge condemning someone guilty of heinous crimes, I remember the story of Dylan Millard some number of years ago in this area who killed a man for his truck and then was found to have committed multiple murders in horrific fashion. I remember when the court case was going on, the news articles were coming out how they had lost evidence and evidence had been tampered with or perhaps contaminated. I was so fearful that they would let that man off. I was so fearful there'd be some loophole in the law and he would be excused from the crimes he committed. And even though the sentence he received was not as great as he deserved, I was so thankful when he was still convicted and sentenced to a difficult and tough prison term at least. When God judges the wicked, it will be like a righteous judge who condemns a heinous criminal and we will say, praise God, justice has been served. There is a real judgment. It is truly horrific. And it is coming. How should we respond? Well, beloved Lord, uh, this is why the Christian gospel and message is so important. This is why Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf as though God were pleading through us to be reconciled to God. There is a real heaven. There is a real hell. And if you are outside of Christ, If you are fighting against God, if Christ is not your Lord, your Savior, your hope, your righteousness, and that does not change, then one day you will experience the torment the Bible describes. But it's not here yet. And God shows you now so you can wake up and say, I have time. And you can come to Christ and you say, Lord, help me. I don't understand everything about what this pastor is talking about. I don't understand everything about what the Bible is saying. But I don't want to go to hell. Please, show me the way to life. Show me how I can be saved. Show me how I can be set free. Because that's what Christ endured on the cross to save you. If you stand in Christ, do you know what it means that Jesus went to the cross to save you? It means he satisfied the eternal wrath of God against sin in your place. This torment, this torment of which there can be found no rest, Christ endured for you so you can be saved. So you might never have to know what it is to suffer at the hands of a holy God so you could receive the love and grace of a God who smiles upon you because he sees you as if you were as pure and holy as Jesus was pure and holy on your behalf. This is what he endured. 
How should the reality of judgment affect us? One, if we are not in Christ, it should make us realize we need a savior. We need a place where the wrath of God can be satisfied. And if we are in Christ, to realize just how great a savior we have, how great is the love that would take this for us who never loved him, never cared for him, never even asked him to go to the cross on our behalf, never even wanted him to. And yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly, the unholy. And in his name, salvation is preached to the nations, to the world. There's a real judgment, and it should affect us, whoever we are, with either godly fear or godly gratitude for the work of Christ. Secondly, good news. Why is this good news? Why is there good news? One of the interesting things is the context in which this is said in verse 7. When the angel comes and announces God's judgment, he says this, Fear God and give him glory, first, because the hour of his judgment has come, second, and third, worship him who made heaven and earth. I want you to notice that the idea of the hour of his judgment is sandwiched between a call to give God glory and fear him and a call to worship him. The reality of God's judgment should lead to praise. It should lead to praise. Why is that? Well, first, because of what we just mentioned, of what it means to stand in Christ. If you know what it is to be forgiven, if you know what it is to be redeemed, if you know Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins, then you don't have to fear this day of judgment. You don't have to fear this day of wrath. You can thank God that he will destroy wicked, and by the grace of God, you will be saved. But secondly, remember that he destroys all those who would tempt others to sin. He destroys all those who would lead others to rebel against the Lord. Don't you hate the sin of your own heart? Don't you hate the fact that you are constantly wandering in the things that God would tell you not to wander in? Constantly rebelling against God when you know you ought not to rebel against God? And don't you hate it when you're fighting against sin, you're striving, you're growing, and all of a sudden something crosses your path and some temptation hits you from out of the blue, and suddenly you find yourselves falling into the same sin you thought God had saved you from so many years before? Do you know that that will never happen again because God is righteous? Do you know he will destroy the sin of your own heart that might lead you back into sinful ways and he will destroy all the sin of this world that could ever lead you away from Christ? In our devotions with our children this week, we read Psalm 125, verse 3. It says this, The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. I'll read it once more because it's quick and off the cuff. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. And we stopped and we, we talked to the kids about this and said, you know what that means? It means that when God brings us to glory, there will never be a scepter of wickedness, never a temptation, never a, a foothold for the devil to lead God's people into sin ever again. You will never have the experience where you meet deep conviction of the goodness of God and the holiness of God and the yearning to live for God only to find that in the week after you've had that conviction, you have fallen into sin and feel the guilt of your heart again. You will never have that again because God will condemn and judge all that will lead to sin. If it is in you, he will destroy it through the cross. And if it's in the world outside of Christ, he will destroy it in holy fire. But God's children will be free. And evil will never, ever 
soil the heart of the child of faith again. Fear God, glorify him, and worship him because the hour of his judgment has come. This also is our salvation, isn't it? It it means that we're going to be set free. It means that the prayers of God's people will finally be answered. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the entire life of the child of God, we are to be taught to pray and yearn for the day when God's will will conquer and triumph in all the earth. And this is that day. This is the day when the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. When we will see the grace of God. In such beautiful, beautiful tones. That we'll be able to sing to God all day long and never grow tired of praising his goodness and his grace. Beloved Lord, this is a day that calls for worship because it shows us a God who is holy, a God who is faithful, and a God who finishes what he begins, a God who redeems, a God who judges, and in doing so is worthy of praise because he is a great and awesome God. And finally, we see how we are to respond to this judgment, not only in worship, but it goes on to say, after it speaks of the judgment of those who lead into temptation, symbolized in the city of Babylon, those who have been led into temptation, symbolized by the mark and the beast. It says in verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. When this vision is given of the final judgment, the divine interpretation of this vision is this. This calls us to press on. This calls us to keep fighting. This calls us not to give up. For the endurance of the saints... How do we respond when the world is tempting us into sin? How do we go through that continual pattern of of failure and forgiveness? That's one of the things that God used to lead me to Christ. It, It was going through that time when the Lord gave me conviction over sin, and yet I didn't give up the sin. And so I'd fall into sin, I'd feel convicted, I'd ask God for grace, I'd be forgiven, I'd feel happy I was forgiven, and then a week later I'd fall back into the same sin again. And it happened over and over and over again. I'd sin, I'd feel guilty, I'd confess my sin, I'd feel forgiveness, I'd be happy, I'd fall back into sin again. And it happened so often, repeated and repeated, that one time I was driving my car after I'd fallen into sin, and I was driving home, and I said to myself, you know what, I was feeling terribly guilty. I said to myself, Lord, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I'm done. If I have to feel guilty and shameful every time I do something I like, then I am finished with you. I am not following Christ anymore. And as I said those words in my head, I lost control of my car. I headed towards a telephone pole in the ditch. I cried out, Lord, save me. My car hit a rock. Something happened. It went around the pole, came back up on the road. Not enough to get out of the ditch. Had to wait for a farmer to come pull me out. And I remember realizing that night that God was real and God was serious and either I would follow him or I would die. 
But isn't there something to that pattern that is just tough? I, 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 you know, when I, when I came to Christ more seriously and realized I had to give him my life, I thought maybe the pattern would stop. Maybe I finally wouldn't fall back into sin anymore. Maybe I finally wouldn't feel that guilt and shame of my sin anymore, but it hasn't stopped. It's been 20, whatever, nine years. Temptations are still there. My heart is still deceitful. I still need grace. So do you. God says the end is coming. Don't give up. The victory is sure for those in Christ. Don't give up. Evil will be defeated. Don't give up. This is a call for you to keep pressing on, keep enduring, not for you to go in your own strength, not for you to forget the gospel, not for you to lose sight of Jesus, but to know what it is to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ and keep pressing on in the way of faith and repentance and grace and mercy and service because it's not gonna last forever. The final trumpet will sound. The clouds will be peeled back like a scroll. Jesus will descend and his reward will be with him. And it will be all, all of grace. This is written to a church that was in a time of tremendous persecution. To be a Christian in the time of, of Rome and when this letter was written meant that you often had to decide between Christ and your life. The Roman emperor had to be worshiped as a god and they would make people say Caesar is Lord and burn incense in a temple to Caesar, claiming him to be God if they wanted to live. Rome didn't care if you were a Christian. You could be a Christian in Rome, but only if you first acknowledged Caesar as God. Once you did that, you could go to your Christian church and worship all you want. As long as you came back and acknowledged Caesar was God, you could go and worship Jesus afterwards. He could, he could be second place, no problem. And John says, not only, here is a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. Remember those two things. Pursuing holiness and resting in grace. Keep the commandments and faith in Christ. No self-righteousness and no lawlessness. But then he goes on to say, blessed are those who die in the Lord from this time on. What's it going to mean to endure? What's it going to mean to keep pressing on the way of faith? And the time in which John wrote this letter can mean you gave your life for Jesus Christ. In the time spoken of, of the final judgment before the coming of Christ, when we have these beasts in increasing power on the world, it can mean the same thing. In the early church it meant this. And yet, what do you see in the early church as the apostles and the disciples and the followers of Jesus lived for the Lord? What do you see as they suffered often for their faith in Christ? You see the church having a joy that simply couldn't be explained. The apostles are beaten for Christ in Acts 5. And the Bible says, after they were beaten, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr is stoned, a deacon named Stephen. As he dies, he's not shaking his fists at the crowds who killed him. He's not screaming, vengeance will be mine. No, he says as he's dying, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he prays for forgiveness 
or those who are killing him and says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. There was a peace in the midst of being killed. There is the joy in the midst of being beaten. Because the more the world rejected the church, the more the church felt the surrounding arms of Christ. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from this time on. God says to the church of Jesus Christ, listen, when the battle gets tougher, when the summons gets greater, when it is between living for the Lord or losing your life, don't give up and remember that if you suffer for the cause of Christ, you're blessed. In a sense, this is what it's all about, isn't it? Learning what it is to give up the pleasures and joys of this world because we have an eternal reward in heaven that will never, ever be taken away. And to actually experience the suffering of Christ, to know and be assured by the very fact that we are rejected by the world, that we are embraced in the arms of a sovereign God who loves us and will take us home. When my father and mother reject me, the Lord will take me in. There is a strength in the people of God that is not of man. It is because there's a God who loves them, who saves them, who redeems them, who carries them. He calls them to press on, even when it seems all is lost, and then says, when you pay the ultimate price, know you have received the ultimate gift. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Beloved, as we hear God's word and message concerning this final judgment, we must respond. If we do not yet know Christ, if we are toying with sin, if we have decided to follow the things of this world, Christ is second place. And it happens in churches. It happens when young people think they're okay if they go out Saturday nights and they party and get drunk, but they show up in church on Sunday, everything's fine. For following sin, God is saying to us, this is not going to go well. it will end in everlasting condemnation. May we repent. May we come to the one who took the wrath of God for us so we can be saved. If we're living for Christ, and I know it's never perfect. There's a, there's a line here that might scare some of us, that their deeds may follow them. End of verse 13, their deeds will follow them. We think to ourselves, what deeds do we have? My works follow me into heaven. It's not going to be a very joyous place to be. Yeah, beloved, if you follow Christ, as much as you may struggle, as much as you may falter, the blood of Christ washes you. You may be aware of all your sins, but God is aware of all the graces he has done in you as well. 
He's aware that once you were fighting God and now you're worshiping him. Once, once you hated him and now you love him. You're not all you should be, and yet he has made you his in Jesus. If you are following Christ, don't give up. The enemy doesn't win. Your sin will not destroy you. The pattern of that guilt and shame that leads to repentance will one day end, and you will have rest. Will the battle ever end? Yes, it will. You will enter the rest of your Lord and it will be the sweetest rest you've ever had because it will be a rest from sin and shame and iniquity and you will know the joy of Christ. When the world is tempting you to walk away from the Savior, when the world is mocking you for an old-fashioned faith, God is real. He loves you with an everlasting love. Press on in Christ because the day is almost here. Beloved, may we know the joy of following Christ. May we know the need of the gospel in a world that will one day face the judgment of a holy God. May we know repentance if we've been walking away from this Lord, finding ourselves further and further from the grace of God. Amen. Let's join together in prayer. Dear Lord and Father, Lord, thank you uh, that you are a living God and you are holy and you are righteous and you are good and you are just. Thank you that one day you will judge this world and all who are in it and wickedness will be destroyed forever and evil will be destroyed forever, both the evil in our own hearts and the evil in the world around us. And we pray, Lord, you will hasten that day. Not only, Lord, for the day you destroy evil in us, but also the day you finish the good work you've begun in us to make us like Christ, to help us to love as he loves and to have a joy that he had. And we pray, Lord, as we wait for that, that you will give us endurance. Help us to press on. Help us to know the Savior. Help us not to wander from his side. Nearer, still nearer, Lord, we pray. And we ask, Lord, that you will grant us a joy even in the things we suffer. Even as we find ourselves being removed more and more from society, more and more from the world, even as we're viewed with greater suspicion. Even as some may face loss of material possessions or reputation or even freedom. For the cause of Christ, we pray, Lord, help us to know the blessing of those who die in Christ for we'll enter our rest and the reward of God will follow. We pray, Lord, you will grant us to know the beauty of our Savior and help us to follow him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And may you hasten the day when our Lord shall return and all praise shall truly be given to God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.